Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Good morning. It's time for the conversation to begin here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. A discussion that needs to happen in America and doesn't happen too often is one of race. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning on Conversation. We're going to talk about race from a particular perspective. My guest this morning, Onoso Imwani, is an author and a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Her new book, Beyond Expectations, Second Generation Nigerians in the United States and Britain. Race, Nigerians, and a whole lot more coming up here on 94 WIP. More in just a bit, the WIP Times 601. And we're back. My guest this morning, Onaso Imwagni, her new book about race in America from the perspective of Nigerian population, Beyond Expectations, Second Generation Nigerians in the United States and Britain. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. When we talk about African-American Americans or black identity, if you will, and sometimes I'm not sure what's the correct word to use. Um, is there a universal black identity that we should think about, or is it different depending on where you come from? Yeah, I think that for talking to my um, the children of Nigerian immigrants and even also my new project talking to um, African immigrants coming out of Ghana and Nigeria, I think there's a sense that they understand that they are, um, they've been assigned into the black racial category. So that's a universal black racial identity, you could say, they all have. They understand they're black. They do not contest being black. They are not seeking to pass out of the black, the black race. And they also understand what it means to be black in the United States. And I, I, I think that's something that's common to most black immigrants and their children. And that's similar to what African Americans also know. But at the same time, isn't it very different whether you come from Nigeria, Ghana, born in America, whatever? Yeah, well, so, yeah, so you could say that the overarching identity for some of them is that we understand that we are black in the United States. But what my, my um, respondents were telling me is that even though we understand that we are black, we are making an argument that we are not culturally the same that we still are ethnically different. And so that's why you have a lot of immigrants coming in and they'll tell you, well, I'm Nigerian-American or I'm Ghanaian-American, I'm from um, the Caribbean. And so they have that whole notion that to be black doesn't mean we are all alike or that we are a monolithic group. We can have this black racial identity and still hold on to our ethnic um, identities. But white America sees it differently, don't they? Yes, that's that. I think that's the challenge, right? That in many corners of the United States, uh, all black people are the same. And so, whether you um, whether you're you're from a different country or you have a different ethnicity or you speak a different language or religion, many times doesn't factor in. And so, my respondents were very conscious of that. They kept on telling me, you know, when we walk down the street. You know, nobody knows that we are not African American or that we are Nigerian. 
um, because they don't we don't speak to them, they don't pick up on our accents, they haven't heard our names. So yes, indeed, it is true that in many places it's just black. And to be black in America very often can be a dangerous thing, can it? Yeah, I mean, we, we, see that, we see that happening right now in the United States, even with the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And so in, it's, it's something that um, my respondents grapple with every day, especially now that they're professionals and are going into the workplace now. They realize, that, yeah, you know, being black is, is impacting our, our outcomes and, and our experiences at work. And so I talked about it in my book, how they are choosing ethnicity because they hold very strong Nigerian-centric identities, but negotiating race at the same time. What does it mean then to be Nigerian or to be a Nigerian African-American? Yeah, well, to them, a lot of what they hold very passionate. When you talk to them and ask them, okay, so what does it mean to be Nigerian? They always start with Nigerian values. Right, that we have Nigerian values. Nigerian values are the core of our of our, of our identity. And I so I asked them, okay, so what what do you mean by Nigerian values? And so they start with the whole notion of respect, the way it's understood. They talk about um, um, valuing education very highly and working hard and and holding on to family and being somewhat conservative. But I think what I found to be interesting is that. Quite a number of the things they have chosen or identify or see as being what makes them Nigerian it's some, it are things many people from different ethnic groups also hold as important. It's just that they have defined these this cultural elements as the things that make them Nigerian in the American diaspora. What kind of questions did you ask people to get the book Beyond Expectations? Yeah, well, I had started, one of the things that got me interested was I wanted to know how well they were doing compared to their parents, because we know that Nigerian immigrants or Nigerians in the United States are one of the most educated immigrant groups or one of the most educated groups in general in the U.S., where um, approximately two out of every three Nigerians has at least a bachelor's degree, where you're looking at adults over the age of 25, which is compared to the U.S. national average of 30%. So I was into, I wanted to find out if the children of Nigerian immigrants were were maintaining this educational advantage. So I started with asking them questions about their childhood, you know, um, how, where are they fit in, where did they grow up, you know, what were their experiences like with African Americans in school. You know, I talked to them about what does being American mean to you, do you think of yourself as American, and a whole host of questions about their parents' background and also their own professional experiences. Well, that intrigues me, the whole question of the Nigerian population being so educated, because I think part of the stereotype of black America is you're not educated. Right. Right. Exactly. And, I, and, and, and that's one of the reasons why I, I wrote this book, which was also to push back against that notion, exactly what you said. Um, and that's what gave rise to the title Beyond Expectations, that they're doing better than has been expected. Because in many um, corners of the United States and even in scholarship about black immigrants and their children, there was this expectation that the children of black immigrants from the Caribbean and Africa wouldn't do so well. Um, because of um, racial discrimination, because of their proximity to to black people in the inner cities. And so there's this whole notion that black people basically are lower class, and we know that there's an existing middle class. And so this book is also just to add on to what we know about the black middle class in the United States.
How did you research the book? Well, I um, I started. I basically it's based on interviews with 450 children of Nigerian immigrants. I wanted to um, interview adults, those who had finished school, who had started working, had started their own households, married, had children. So I started my research in um, Britain, and I interviewed 75 individuals there. And I started with the Nigerian embassy in London. So I had this screening into the screening questionnaire where I was trying to identify the children of Nigerian immigrants who fit into my criteria. And from there, you know, if I found out that you fit in, I'll go and I'll talk to you and say, hey, would you give me your number, your email? Let let me follow up. Let me interview you. And I did something similar in the in the U.S. where I went to the consulate in New York, the Nigerian consulate in New York. And from there, and through different Nigerian organizations for the for the children of Nigerian immigrants, I, I was able to put together the sample of 150 uh, respondents. Now, is it different for Nigerian immigrants in Britain than it is here in America? I mean, Britain is known to be a more class-conscious society than us. Yes, indeed, indeed. And, um, you know, that was one of the things that was most surprising to me when I when I started my field work because I, I just generally threw in those questions because I was interested in questions of identity, how they're forming new identities and how they're relating with African-Americans here in the U.S. and Caribbeans in Britain. So I asked them, you know, what does it, what does being British mean to you? What does being American mean to you? Do you think of yourself as British? Do you think of yourself as American? And it was so surprising that though the respondents in, in Britain, even though they were doing very well, they were professionals, medical doctors, lawyers, accountants, what have you, you know, when I asked them what does being British mean to you, they would pause, many of them would laugh and say it means nothing to me or it means having a passport that makes it easy for me to travel, you know, and do you think of yourself as being as British? You know, most would choose um to be chose to identify as Nigerian. And then I came to the US side and I was like, what does being American mean to you? And all of them were waxing poetic that oh it means the land of opportunities, it means freedom, it means the American dream and do you think of yourself as American? And they were like, Yes, definitely. So that was one of the striking differences that those in Britain did not feel as British as those in America felt American. Well those from America that you interviewed talked about the American dream, the land of opportunity. Did they think they found it when they came here? Yes, I, I, I believe so. Um, they also were doing well, at least, you know, most, almost all of them had at least a bachelor's, and, and they were also professionals and also starting up their careers. And so um, they felt that, um, that America had been good to them. You know, quite a number of them talked about um, the struggles their parents had gone through, their parents really having to work very hard and, and, and um, those kind of things. But they, they were, you know, they were actually happy. And I think one of the main reasons why is that Africa, um, Nigerians and black immigrants and their children have been able to piggyback on the infrastructure that has been put in place for African Americans, for example, being being able to enjoy the, the benefits of affirmative action policies, be able to get some minority fellowships to university, to college. And so that has just strengthened their belief in America as a land of opportunity. Did either group, whether it was Britain or here in America, say why their families emigrated to start with? Um, 
I, yeah, they talked about it. And I think when you look at the history of Nigerians migrating to the United States and Britain, they are mostly economic and social migrants. So many Nigerians are coming to pursue tertiary education. They want to get a bachelor's, a master's, or further degrees. And I think that's largely because we are 100 Nigerians. That, um, the population of Nigeria is 180 million people. And so these countries in the West, America, um, Britain, Canada, all the countries in the West have put in place very strict visa rules to allow Nigerians to exit to come to their countries. And so one of the easiest ways is to come as a student to try to pursue educational opportunities or to come as a professional. And so that has really been um, why you see a lot of skilled um, Nigerians migrating out of Nigeria into these Western diasporas. Why don't they go home again, though? I think now um, the numbers the numbers really vary. It's very hard to keep track of these numbers because of post statistics and the way Nigeria keeps its data. But I think return migration is something that is occurring more and more where more Nigerians are moving back. But largely, I mean, Nigerians have been moving out of, or migrating out of Nigeria in the 70s, even till now because of, hardships, economic hardships, political instability, though it's better now in Nigeria because we've now had um, successive democratically elected governments. And so um, they've been pursuing career advancement. They want, you know, a higher standard of living for themselves and their family members. And so that's one of the reasons why many of them have chosen to settle and stay. But as I said, a growing proportion of Nigerians and other immigrants are moving back. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is Onaso Imwagni. Her new book, Beyond Expectations, Second Generation Nigerians in the United States and Britain. And we're talking about the question of race in America as perceived by Nigerian immigrants. My name's Peter Solomon. How do they feel, though, when they come to America and they associate with other black Americans who come from a very different place and a different culture and mentality. Yeah, and, and, and I think that was also another surprising finding that when I started my field work, because um, I, when speaking to um, the second generation here in the U.S., all of them, regardless of wherever they grew up, all talked about having a tough time with the African-American peers. And that really was something that they had experienced in school during, from right around the upper levels of elementary school, middle school into high school. And so they talked about how, you know, they were really surprised that they felt that African-Americans would be their brothers and their sisters or would be their natural allies, as some of them put it, because they were of the same skin, they had the same skin color, only to get there and start interacting with African-Americans and, and being told, you know, you might be black, but you're a different kind of black, or you're not, you're not like us, right? And so they had, they talked about stories about um, being called African booty scratcher. And I don't think that's unique to Nigerians. You talk to almost any African and they'll tell you, yeah, we had that, that slur. It was, it was leveled against us. And so, you know, African-American peers basically saying, you know, you guys are less civilized than we are, go back to your jungle, was a phrase they commonly heard. And so um, it was interesting to me to hear these stories of conflict, um, intra-racial conflict between African-Americans and young Africans. 
that astounds me because you would think they would see unity, not division. Exactly. That that I, I was surprised myself. And I kept on asking and probing, and it was, as I said, it was a story they all told. And even now, talking to people, you know, every time I talk to African Africans, they're like, yeah, Africa actually relates to this chapter because this is our life. You're describing what happened to us. And um, even my sister, she school, we came, we were in the U.S. very briefly for six months in the 80s, and this was her experience exactly as she was in elementary school. Um, being called spider head because they had tread, being called Medusa, being told you smell. So it was it was absolutely amazing. And um, and I think what I found was that this this experience, the nature of the interaction when you are younger was is really impactful. It really has affected how they identify now as adults because it was since what they told me was that since we were being told you're a different kind of black, they had to define their own blackness which put them on the path of articulating ethnic difference from African-Americans. Obviously, then, they resent it when they get defined in that way, don't they? Yes, <laughs> the relations are tense. And, 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 and I talk about how, you know, in the United States, where we started at the beginning of our conversation, many times you, the whole idea is that uh, black people are the same, right? Or black people are a monolithic group, or a homogeneous, a homogeneous group. And and so we rarely spend time on trying to investigate how black diversity is playing out on the ground, especially because now in the 21st century, black people are becoming increasingly diverse on ethnic lines, on national lines, on in class lines. And, and oftentimes we don't spend enough time figuring out how all these different black groups are relating with one another, how they are contesting what it means to be black. And so this was just an example of how it's not a seamless, it's not seamless at all how they're assimilating into the United States. Did they discuss at all how they felt about white America? Uh, they did. I mean, you talk to them and after a while, you know, so you move away from kindergarten to 12th grade and you come to start talking to them about the experiences in university and now that they're professionals in in the workplace and that's where they now have more dealings with white people. I mean, they always had dealings with white people, but in their professional lives is where you see how their experiences with their white colleagues are also shaping how they identify. And so, yes, they did talk about... Um, um, the challenges they've had um, trying to to progress, trying to enjoy economic success um, in the workplace. What did they say, though? Um, I think one of the things they talk about is um, talking to some of them in, 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 in the U.S. They talked about how they feel as if they do not get as much um, mentorship or as much organizational support at work compared to their white colleagues. Um, quite a number of them talked about the whole, they have to have this strategy of minimizing their ethnic difference, how they can't be too blatant about being different, being black or being Nigerian, you know. They have to make sure they, 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 they work very hard to make their white colleagues comfortable with them. Um, and so I talked about the strategy of minimizing ethnic difference because that's the way. So the onus is on them really to 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 shift and to learn the behaviors that um, that are valorized and are accorded value in the workplace. 
Don't show up for work in ethnic dress then. <laughs> yes, don't show up for the women with your hair braided and woven. Maybe things are changing now, but that was definitely how they were trained and how they were they were they were taught and um, when they were entering the workforce. The adults, how do they see raising their children here in white America? Um, they all, they, I think some of them are also engaging in this whole black respectability politics kind of thing that, oh, no, you have to make sure you're calm, you know, you teach your children, you know, don't talk back, you know, they also tell themselves those kind of things, make sure you just go along. But I think what we what we know from sociological research is that that doesn't help you all the time or, you know, it doesn't save you from being discriminated against or even ex- experiencing violence, but they definitely espouse that belief that it's also your comportment that matters and that would help you. Um, they also try to tell their children, which is how their parents raise them, that, you know, Nothing is impossible. You just have to strive hard. And even if people are trying to put barriers in your front, you have to just work harder. Again, that's something they grew up with and they try to pass on to their kids. It's interesting to me as we talk about their experience of Nigerian Americans. It's typical of many immigrant immigrant groups, isn't it? Yes. Yes, you're so right. And, and, and you know, li- listening to my respondents and reading up on what people have, the research people have done on second-generation Asians, you know, Korean-Americans, Vietnamese-Americans, you know, uh, Filipinos, what people have written about um, Hispanics, you realize or even what people have also written about um, second-generation immigrants from European per- um, Euro- European immigrants, you realize that the experiences are very similar, especially the experiences of um, the children of non-white immigrants, the whole notion of trying to figure out how they identify, trying to figure out how they feed, you know. And um, that's one of the things I found out, and, and I talked about it in my book at the end of the day, that there, there's so much that um, all these different groups have in common, more than they, they tend to think, and that hopefully is the basis for for stronger interracial coalitions to be built. Do you think that will happen now? <sighs> I don't Well, you know, I think it's good to be optimistic, right, to take mm-hmm. an optimistic position here. And um, because, you know, how people, there's this saying about you, you, you see how segregated America is on Sunday mornings when you go to, people go to their churches and you see everybody's in the Korean church and the Nigerian church and the Ghanaian church and everybody's in their own corner of the world. But I think it's possible. I think, I think college, especially for those who go to college, is a good opportunity, is a good site for some of these, um, these um, bridges to be built. Now, you mentioned, though, religion, in that there's a church is divided by ethnicity. How does that work? Uh, I think, you know, this is also talking from my own experience as a a Nigerian immigrant and also to the people I've spoken to. It's all about beds of the same feather flock together kind of thing where you feel more comfortable with your own people in that sense. And, and when you think about, when you look at a lot of 
um, individuals who come into the United States as immigrants, they tend to be invited by co-ethnics to the immigrant church or that church that is known to the community. And you go there and you feel comfortable. You're like, oh, yeah, this is like how service was back home. I don't have to adjust to a quieter kind of service. I like the music. It's the same beats, you know. And, and, and so you just, you just flow and you find yourself not segregated, not mixing. But God is God, no matter what church you worship in, isn't it? Definitely. Oh, no, this doesn't mean, yeah, God is God no matter what church. And I think the belief, the Christian belief holds across all the churches. It's just that, it's, as I said, many, many immigrants look at the church as a refuge, as, as a place where they can be comfortable, as a place where their ethnic culture can be kept vibrant, as a place of safety, and, and, and so they really do not want to, you know, they want to stay with what they are used to, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's how church was in back home. This is, it's the same, at least in this area. I don't have to experience some. Did you encounter any Muslim, Nigerian, American immigrants? Yes, indeed. I did have um, some Muslims in my sample because in Nigeria, the split is basically half-half. So you say we don't keep official figures because the census does not ask about questions of religion and ethnicity. But generally, the idea is that it's 45% Christian, 45% Muslim, and 10% traditional worshippers in Nigeria. So you do tend to meet some Muslim Nigerian immigrants, yes. This country, though, white America, it yeah. to get very tense when he thinks about the question of Muslim anybody. Right. Do they, right. Feel, do they feel that tension as Muslim Nigerian-Americans? Right, right. That's a, that's, that's a good question. I think, um, in a sense, Nigerian Muslims have been, first of all, yeah, because they're part of the Muslim um, community at the larger Muslim community, they do feel they do feel these tensions, and they they do not necessarily they are, they are sometimes they can be offended by it or they feel sad about it because they feel they are being uh, seen as unassimilable or being put to one excluded in a sense. Um, but I think the next thing I would say to that is that um, in a sense they are fortunate because Nigerian. Uh, Muslims haven't been identified as Nigerians haven't really been identified as a, as the Muslim community compared to maybe some some refugee groups out of Africa. So in a way, they are not the group that has been uh, identified as as the group they should uh, that people should push back against. They are able to hide in a sense. And you're listening to conversation here on ninety four WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back for more discussion about Beyond Expectations, second-generation Nigerians in the United States and Great Britain. After these messages, WIP time, 6.30. And we're back. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, Philadelphia is lucky to have her. Her new book, Bionasa Imwaniim. Wagni, excuse me for stumbling over the name, her new book, Beyond Expectations, Second-Generation Nigerians in the United States and Britain. Why is it important we know this stuff? Um, I guess 
for a couple of, of reasons. The first is, as I said, the, the black population in the United States is becoming more diverse, and we sort of need to know, understand who are the groups in there and how they and their children are faring, you know, so to broaden our understanding of the black experience in the United States, I think, and in Britain also, that's one reason. I think I also see this book as, as helping to advance the discussion on ethnicity among black people to chip away at this notion that all black people are the same. And, and, and related to that, again, to push back against this whole belief that to be black is, to, is synonymous with um, a disadvantaged class experience or it's synonymous with not doing well, to really try to open people's eyes to, to um, the different emerging middle class groups and the strategies they are using to foster good outcomes for their children. So I think just to help us, just to broaden our understanding of the black experience in the United States and Britain is why we need to know this and, and to come away with a, with a more positive and, a, and a, a, truer, a truer picture of what's going on. Now, you mentioned earlier a Nigerian immigrant is likely to be more educated than another black immigrant. But within their own society, there's going to be some that aren't. Do they look down yes. on those who are less educated? Um, no, I, I, I do not. From what I, what I, from my study, no, they do not. I think Nigerians in the United States and in Britain, they realize that they are, they, they've been selected out as in to be able to come into the U.S. They've been given an opportunity. They've been... They, they are sort of the best and the brightest. And, and many of those who are not as educated as them, who don't have at least a bachelor's, oftentimes might be their parents, the parental generation, because quite a number of Nigerians are reaching the point where they are citizens of the U.S. now, and so they can bring in their parents. And, and, and so it's possible. In that sense, you can't look down on your parents uh, because they do not have a bachelor's. And, and, and the communities, they have different organizations across um, in, in Nigerian communities that are really pledged to, to help across class. Within black America, if I can paint a broader picture for a minute, one of the ways that the society seems to segment itself from literature that I've read anyway, people make judgments based on skin color, and on your hair, you have good hair or bad hair, good skin color or bad skin color. Do such divisions and judgments exist in the Nigerian community? Um, yes, but yes, I think when you think about the black community, um, you see some of these things as traces of, of slavery and colonialism. And so, indeed, you have... So it's colorism, right, that the lighter you are, you sort of are more popular. People like you when you're lighter, when you have softer hair, not nappy hair, not that very kinky hair. And we have some of that in, in, in Nigeria and in different African countries. People will make an argument, for example, that the, the prevalence of, of bleaching, or what some people, women, will call brightening your skin color, um, is also trying to... Um, attain this beauty, this beauty standard, the white standard of beauty. Yeah. So we do have some of that, yes. How about what's been termed the black anger? Taking to the streets, fearing police, demonstrating against police. Do they, do they experience that as well? 
Well, I my I had I conducted this. Um, I talked to my respondents before the Black Lives Matter movement and before this period of time that we've witnessed this past few years in the U.S. And so I can't speak to that for the second generation. But in my new project, I'm talking to winners of the U.S. Diversity Visa Lottery program out of Ghana and Nigeria, I would say that um, they are not identified, they are not coming out. These first generation West African immigrants aren't coming out to engage in any of these protests. Yeah. At university where you teach, at University of Pennsylvania, do you teach yes. this stuff? Do you expose the students to it? Well, yes, I teach Introduction to Sociology. That's one of the courses I teach and um, I, talk, I sort of present it as a buffet course where I'm introducing them to different subfields in sociology and I do talk about immigrant immigration in, in the US. I talk about um, questions of assimilation, race and ethnicity. So yes, we touch upon it a bit. And I would imagine in your classroom there's a whole range of socioeconomic groups and ethnic groups. How do yes. they how do they react to what you present about immigration? <laughs> That's, well, you know, I think I take a sort of a historical view. So the last time I took the course last semester, I actually started with the formation of race in the U.S., and so I made them read some work talking about how whiteness, whiteness as a category was, was created in, in the United States and how groups that are now thought of as white, where it's thought, where it, we are initially told they weren't white. So I talked about how Italians have become white and how Jews have become white and how, you know. So I think it's, it's, it was surprising to them to realize that a lot of what is happening now isn't new. It's something that happened in the past. And so we are just constantly, the country is just constantly figuring out or adapting to change as immigrants come in and trying to figure out, oh, yeah, where do we place this individual? And so I think that was really to realize that, oh, yeah, we just look at everybody as white American now. We're all white. But historically, that wasn't the case. I, I, I feel that they, they took a lot from that. The real issue then, it seems to me, becomes in our society our tendency to paint with a broad brush about racial groups, ethnic groups, religious groups. And that's a bad thing, isn't it? Well, it, it, it's a bad thing if you are, you are attaching negative stereotypes and, and all kinds of negative baggage to, to, to the group. And so um, for black people in the United States, for African-Americans, I think historically that has been part of the problem where um, black people have been seen as sort of unassimilable, right? They are just on one, one, they're standing in one corner of, of um, the American system. And so you see that even now where people keep on talking about, oh, how is the U.S. color line going to change now that you have so many people from non-white parts of the world coming in? And, and, and so you say, okay, whites might be at the top of the racial hierarchy. And people are like, yeah, Asians are, you know, they're becoming, you know, getting close to whites. There's a lot of uh, interracial marriage between Asians and white people. And Hispanics, especially middle-class Hispanics, might be presenting as whites. But black people still are one side of the divide. And so, yeah, it, 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 it's an issue. Well, but when we look at the history of immigration, all the immigrant groups that came before African-Americans were white, and they could assimilate because their skin colors all matched. 
the African American, no matter how hard they try, can't change their skin color, and they don't. They shouldn't have to. Exactly. That's so. That's why. That's why we're saying that you know. So some sociologists um, talk about black exceptionalism because many of these groups came after black black Americans, African Americans came in and their ancestors came into the United States. And so that's what makes their position so unique in, in the U.S. and also in Britain. Again, matching the timeline of your research against the timeline in general, did they remark about how they felt about Barack Obama becoming president? Oh, yes. I mean, there was what we call an Obama effect, both in the U.S. and in Britain, especially those in Britain. They were so excited about um, his election and his candidacy and then his election as president. And um, they were like, yeah, that means, you know, there's every, anything is possible for the black person. You know, they were really excited in Britain. And they kept on telling me, yeah, it's only in America. America is more open. They can't envisage, they can't envision um, a black prime minister in in, in Britain. And I was like, seriously? I was like, yes, because we don't even have any prominent members of parliament who are black. And so it was a global phenomenon. I know people were back in Nigeria were following it so strongly. And then coming to the U.S., all my respondents were so excited. I had a few of them telling me things like, yeah, you know, he's actually a, he's actually a second-generation African because his father was, was Kenyan, and so he's very much like us. And so there was that whole, you know, it really, it also really helped make them more American, I would say, because they're like, yeah, that means a black person can do it, and that's, that's very, very encouraging to us. Within the African population in general that comes to America, is there any kind of tension or unity between the Nigerian-American and the Kenyan-American and the Ugandan-American, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, from, from, from the research I am doing currently and speaking to some of my colleagues who are working with, uh, who are interviewing African immigrants first generation, there is unity. It's, to a large extent, Africans, West Africans, have made the healthcare sector a, a niche, an ethnic niche, where you find a lot of them working as care workers, as nurses, as, as LPNs. And so they, they have this, there is a lot of mixing going on there. They have a lot of colleagues who are also African. So yes, there's that whole notion of where Africans, this emerging pan-ethnic African identity that um, that is that is coming up among first and second generation Africans. Yeah. You talk about new research. What direction is that going in? So as I said, it's it's the research on um, um, Ghanaian and Nigerian diversity visa lottery winners. So the United States runs this program every year that grants fifty thousand green cards, legal permanent residence um, status to individuals from underrepresented countries, countries that haven't had, don't, haven't sent a lot of people to the United States. And so I'm actually doing work studying these individuals, asking them, you know, why they, they, they applied for the visa lottery and how their lives compare with the expectations they, they had of what life would be like in the United States. And I'm trying to compare them with a matching cohort of of individuals back in their home countries who did who applied but did not win to see whether you know their lives are better off those who won whether their lives are better off than those who stayed behind so that's sort of the way I'm going with the research now you mentioned the Fed the United States program 
to bring underrepresented populations into the American system. It seems to me that's highly likely to go away under the current president. Yes, definitely. Right now, the U.S. diversity visa lottery program is at risk. I do not know the the bill that was put in that um, pending legislation. They haven't actually started working on it or marking it up or discussing it, but put forward by Tom Cotton and another senator is really wanting to do away with the program. So, yes, a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, let's get rid of that program and instead focus on more on on highly skilled um, immigrants instead. And you're listening to Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back. It's Conversation into the home stretch with my guest this morning, Onaso Imwagni. Her new book, Beyond Expectation, Second Generation Nigerians in the United States and Britain. All right, Onaso, what are the policy implications for all of this? What needs to change? What needs to happen? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I talk about is how can we awaken kinship ties or how can we strengthen kinship ties between the different black groups in the United States and in Britain. I think, you know, reading the book, you realize that there is some social distance between African immigrants and their children from African Americans. As I talked about it earlier, some of it started when the younger generation were in school and also with um, the adult immigrants coming in and sort of seeing African-Americans as different from them and basically saying, no, they take an approach we wouldn't take on a variety of issues. And so I think that uh, there's a need for for leaders in communities and and different ethnic associations and different groups to think about how um, they can, can leverage the strength that each of these groups has um, to, to move the entire black population forward in the United States. I think it's something that we have to, to really put some attention to instead of just focusing only for, especially for the immigrant groups, just on your own community and your own, your own association and, and your affairs and things happening back in the home country. To also think about how we can actually extend our help and our, and, and, and possibly think about how we can come together across the different groups of Africans, African-Americans, and Caribbeans. Um, So that's something I talk about. I think it's also important to think about how we can also have interracial coalitions across not just the black group, but across all the different groups, racial groups in the United States. Because um, just from my own research and doing the reading, there's so much we have in common. But oftentimes we are, we are not aware that our, our experiences are the same in the United States as immigrants because we, are, we, we just don't have much opportunity for, for conversation. So I think these are things that we really have to, to think about. And then, you know, coming on from the African side, I think, um, you know, now with the whole notion of immigrant remittances and all these sending countries realizing that they have a great resource within their citizens overseas, I think um, these countries, the sending countries, so Nigeria in this case, and other sending countries have to think creatively about how they can also maintain connection with the children of their citizens who are being born uh, um, as citizens in the new country and how they can actually um, make sure that they don't lose ties with, with uh, within newer generations coming up, subsequent generations. All right. You think it's possible, though? Are you encouraged? Sorry, what did you say? 
Do you think it's possible? Are you encouraged? I am. I am. I think that, you know, a lot of certain countries that, like, take, for example, the United um, Nigeria, for a very long time they were taking a hands-off approach to their immigrants. They're like, oh, yeah, the immigrants have left Nigeria. Let them. That, that's the end of it. But I think they are now actually actively engaging with their, with their citizens in the diaspora. We have a diaspora day back in Nigeria. You have the, um, President Lucia Gobasanjo, the president about two, three times removed, actually coming into the United States and in Britain to meet with, with their citizens to talk about how um, the, the, the Nigerians in the diaspora could become partners in Nigeria's development. So there are active steps in that regard. In terms of... Um, um, awakening kinship ties or trying to figure out how we can leverage the strengths of the different black groups. Um, I was I, I was in a, at a talk at the University of Maryland about a year ago or two years ago where we were having that conversation where African-Americans and, and West Indians and Africans were having a conversation about how um, they could form closer ties uh, through their student organization. So, yes, I think it's something people are grappling with, and I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. Do you see a role for the schools in all of this? Um, For the schools, I, yes, I believe administrate, there is a role. There is a role. They can facilitate these conversations. They can give um, um, resources. They can give sites and venues and, and, and put it in their active programming for students. I think there's a role for schools, both for K-12 and especially at the, at the university level. But is there, a will, is there a will to make it happen in white America? Because I think that's important. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I guess... What I've been saying largely has been a lot of it being the leaders in in the in the black communities with some with some uh, support from from administrators at college level. But the the larger will in white America really has to be to confront the the um, institutional racism and to understand the structural underpinnings of persistent racial inequality. And I think um, that's where people will, are more pessimistic that there really isn't a will among the larger American society to, to understand and, and that, look, a lot of this is structural and, um, and try to really come up with, with real solutions to deal with it. I think that's where you'll find some sociologists being pessimistic. And I want to thank you to my guest this morning, Onoso Imwagni, her new book about Nigerian society. Thank you, Onoso. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. And it's been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay cool this this Sunday. It's going to be hot out there. Lots of cold drinks, loose clothing, air conditioning if you've got it. And if you don't have it, open the windows and get those fans a-going because it's hot outside. And it's going to be hot conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.